This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Welcome to TJFDCT on Clubhouse. If you are new here, welcome to the Decentralized Trials Club. We gather here every Friday, 12 to 1. Eastern, 9 to 10 Pacific. Each Friday, we cover a different topic related to decentralizing research and helping to make clinical trials more accessible on a global scale. We have different topics, and those topics come from you, the audience and members of this community. And so if you have a topic you would love to see us cover in the weeks and months ahead, feel free to drop a line to myself, to Amir Kalali, to Jane Miles. Do that here on Clubhouse, LinkedIn, Twitter, email, text, whatever works best for you. And we'll make sure we build your story into this cadence. We have some great topics coming up in the weeks ahead, as well as lots of great content from the weeks in the past. Best way to keep track of that Tap Decentralized Trials on the top left of your screen, and you can follow the club here on the Clubhouse app. That's going to give you an easy way to access the replays from the sessions we've had for over the past year, as well as get a glimpse at what's coming up in the weeks ahead. In two weeks' time, we'll be having a conversation about whether physicians can prescribe a clinical trial and how can decentralization help to make that happen. And we'll have the um, illustrious Brad Hightower from Hightower Clinical as well as Scott Stout from MedVector for that one. That's in two weeks' time. Next week, Jane, we're going to have a great session next week. We're going to be talking about DCT best practices and the DTRA handbook to help make that available. So we'll have some of the initiative leaders like Dan DeBonis from Signet Health and Michael DeMarco from PwC. And Jane, I know you've been hands-on with those teams helping to bring that work to life. Yep, super excited to hear from them and also hear from you about your questions and your wish list. What else do you wanna see? And that's the big you, that's not me you, that's you you. Everybody here in this room, in the audience, whether on replays or here with us today. So we'll, we'll as always, prompt folks on LinkedIn with the session, the topic coming up that week. And maybe Jane will make sure we're trying to prompt people to share their questions there on LinkedIn as well and get that conversation going. Amir, how are you doing today? Great, thank you. And I'm impressed. We even had the intro music at Clubhouse. They're really upping their options, huh? 
Oh, absolutely. We are a polished operation here on Clubhouse now, Amir. <laughs> That's good. I'm doing great. Looking forward to these topics and today's topic in particular. See, it only took about 50 weeks of 60 weeks of doing this, and we've got this down now. Um, yeah, well, I think there's a lot of new functions on Clubhouse. They're desperately trying to you know, keep people. So I think they're adding more and more functionality, which is good. I can't wait for ChatGPT to get integrated here like it is on Teams and uh, maybe a Clubhouse ChatGPT Pro feature. We'll have a whole little bot sitting there right up here in the session with us uh, telling us that we're all wrong and correcting all of the misinformation people may be sharing. Oh, I thought you meant the ChatGPT would mean that you could be sleeping in and, and, and there'll be a, you know, a bot replacing you and answering questions and seeing if people can tell the difference, right? <laughs> That's a great point, right? I saw on LinkedIn, I think Andrew Radcliffe or somebody had reposted, uh, there was a gentleman who had um, had an AI, he used like four different AI tools to create a script, to cut video that, rep, uh, cut audio track that replicated his voice, that had a... Uh, um, an avatar that replicated his look, but certainly that part, just those first two steps of not only the content, but the uh, the deep fake like voice replicating features. That's true, especially for you on the West Coast, Jane, Amir, you guys can sleep in. Yeah, the only thing I would say, Craig, I was clearly joking because I don't think any bot is going to replace your ability to host this. So that ain't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. And Amir, I, I'm a little jealous. Jane's got a party balloon going with I know, her. Uh, I noticed that. I've, I've seen that before. Maybe it's an anniversary thing for Clubhouse. I forget what that means. We're going to call it an anniversary or just yeah. being fabulous. One way or the other, that's right for you, Jane. It's not 99 red balloons, it's one. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> all she needs. Well, we've got a great topic today, and we've talked in the past about connected devices, wearable sensors, digital endpoints, but there are so many questions and unanswered questions and opportunities still to unpack there. Where are we in the adoption curve, and what are the real barriers standing in the way of more meaningful, widespread adoption? What's it going to take to hit an inflection point? Is there really one, or is it just going to be a, a slow and steady uh, shift? Uh, across the industry towards these more contemporary ways to measure and what are some practical advice for study teams that may be considering in this direction uh, from folks that are making this their living and doing this every day and so with that in mind I am thrilled to welcome Megan and Luke from Cineos to join us here today. It's great to have you both here. Thank you uh, Megan for setting up this week's topic. I hope you don't mind if you can come off mute and just introduce yourself for folks that don't know you. Share a little bit about your background and the work that you're doing today. Yeah, thank you so much for, for having us on this topic. We're thrilled to be able to have some open conversation about something that um, Luke and I are both really passionate about, which is sensors. Um, so at Simeos, I'm part of the Decentralized Solutions team. Um, and so what we work on is trying to bring innovative solutions to our clients, one of those being the use of um, connected sensors. Um, my background is in medical device. Um, and then most recently, I was implementing decentralized trials um, globally for a number of rare diseases. So pretty varied background. Pretty and have Luke. you been at Cineos long or were you uh, working in some other environments for some of that prior work? 
Um, I've been at Sineos approaching a, a year now, so I'm pretty new to the organization. So most of my experience was um, elsewhere. Very good. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing your collective experience from uh, the, the last year and, and before then as well, uh, especially on this particular topic. And Luke, it's great to have you here. Welcome to Clubhouse. Share a little bit for the audience about your background and the work you're doing today. Thank you, Craig. Um, my background is as a clinician. I'm a clinical psychologist and neuropsychologist by training. Um, I spent uh, just over 10 years of my career working in the health service in the UK before moving into um, clinical academia. And then seven years ago, just over, I joined Sineos Health, where I'm part of the clinical surveillance and training team. I work there as a lead clinical scientist. Um, and this is re really where I come to this piece because um, often my role is to bring some of my background in understanding psychometrics, understanding measurement, what validates instruments, et cetera, as well as some of that broader clinical background about what works, what practically works at trial sites to really sit alongside sponsors and some of our um, study team to help think through some of this piece, this um, developing world of sensors and wearables that we're, we're all very excited about, but we just need to be very careful to make sure that it fits with our overall goal, which is to support the sponsor develop their product. It's great to have you both here. You know, Amir, I was thinking back on uh, having Michelle Keefe, the CEO of Cineos at the CNS Summit last fall. I'm actually on a panel with her on Monday at the Bioinvestor Conference in New York on the future of CROs. And so it's great to hear how different CROs, different leading CROs are, are taking some of these fresh approaches and helping organizations to drive scale around them. Um, Yep, I mean, I think some of them taking different approaches. So it's interesting to watch that. Absolutely, very true, actually. And maybe we'll even come to some of that in a couple of minutes in this conversation. But maybe to get us started, I'm wondering, Megan, where do you believe we are in the adoption of these different approaches? We see so many headlines about the future of connected devices and wearables and sensors and the the potential for them. But where are they actually being used today? What types of studies or what types of role are they playing? Yeah, I think what's great about connected sensors at this point is that they've expanded so much beyond just that of, you know, counting steps or collecting singular pieces of objective data. And they've branched out into whole quality of life measurements that can be done objectively. Um, I've been seeing a lot of use of these sensors in the sleep space. Um, there's been some great work done on sleep quality, sleep quantity, um, the addition of vital signs to actigraphy to really be able to detect when sleep is occurring day and night. Um, so great advances in sleep as well as movement. Um, there's some really interesting work being done in gait analysis, like looking at differences in um, 
you know, patients' ability to, to move, how much they're moving, but also the quality of their movement. Are they walking with symmetry or asymmetries to their gait? So I think a lot of the work that I've been seeing um, in connected sensors that has good adoption with our, our clients and sponsors are in those two areas. But there's also a ton of really unique um, and interesting applications of these, these sensors as well um, that you know, hopefully will we'll start to be used more widely. Well, that's, that's interesting to hear. And certainly measuring sleep, measuring movement are not just for studies that are looking at new treatments for sleep or for movement disorders, but can certainly be important endpoints that we can consider across different uh, disease areas, across interventions, especially where um, different therapeutics can have adverse or positive effects on sleep as a consequence. Yes, absolutely. Especially, you know, things that you would not consider as far as medical conditions and the respiratory space, you know, coughing, wheezing, discomfort there could affect quality of life um, in sleep. So absolutely, those measurements can apply to so many therapeutic areas besides just, you know, specialties in, in that space. I think, Craig, just to expand a little bit on what you're saying, it always occurs to me that you know, this could be if as useful in R&D as it is in commercialization. So for me, you know, one of the challenges we've had historically in lots of therapeutic areas is that what we measure and our outcome measures is not necessarily what the patient cares about. And I think in terms of differentiation in a, in a market, having some outcome measures where you're not just separating on the, you know, the primary outcome that the FDA wants, but really for a clinician to choose between multiple treatments, I think we're really underutilizing, you know, whether it's digital variables or not, frankly, alternative outcome measures that truly make a difference to the patient or the clinician choosing it, you know, they're just not that differentiation. So I see a lot of potential being able to use these in those terms, both in R&D and commercialization. Such a great point. You know, you even think about areas in dermatology, like atopic dermatitis. And when you talk to patients or parents, of children affected. Quality of sleep is a huge unmet need and a huge challenge in their minds and may not be something that the regulators necessarily have their eyes on, but it's certainly prominent to those families, not even just those patients as individuals. Luke, are, are you seeing the same in terms of where adoption is happening today? Are there other niches or pockets where there is really nice uptake or activity happening around the use of sensors and wearables? Um, I mean, particularly in my um, specialist area of CNS, we are starting to see adoption in particularly in conditions like Parkinson's, which lend themselves well to some of these measures, but also in other conditions like Alzheimer's, where um, people's activity level might be affected by the state of their disease or the state of their agitation. So we're seeing them coming through. I think what we're not seeing so much is them percolating maybe beyond phase one, early phase two. I think what the real growth area that hopefully we'll see over time is their greater use in later phases. Um, yeah, and that's just not happening so much at the moment. I think that's for a number of reasons really. Um, I think part of that is about the, um, it's about that regulatory piece, about 
needing to be able to make a case that gets regulatory approval and also pair approval for um, for a particular product. And as these are new technologies, there's often not that well-established pathway to follow. And I think there might be some inherent conservatism there, some um, cautiousness about being the first the first product to go there, the first product to go there and try and use those new technologies to uh, as your primary endpoints. So I think that's maybe what holds things back slightly in slightly more in the later phases. Let's go deeper there because there is so much uh, conversation about these connected devices. There have been pathways that have been tried to be made more clear with work from city and dime at least in the us with the fda around the pathways to develop qualify validate new digital measurements and yet there still seem to be some pretty uh, significant barriers in terms of more widespread adoption is this primarily about regulatory ambiguity, burden, or variability on a country by country basis for global programs, or what else is really standing in the way? Luke? I mean, I, I think I think that is a big factor there. Like I said, it's there's a certain risk in being the iconoclast that breaks the mold and particularly as lots of companies in seeking to develop their product have got very tight um, timelines which often relate to their future financial health so that might tend to push people in more conservative directions but I think there are also some going to be some cohort effects in terms of investigators um, the more we progress in time the more we're going to have a, a digitally native investigator population who might be more instinctively open to some of these measures. But also, I think at the same time, we'll start to see, hopefully, an ease in the kind of plug and play abilities of some of these measures. Because at the moment, often, I think it's easier for sites to pick up something they've worked with for 20 years, which may be on paper, than it is to pick up something that whilst it may have potentially greater sensitivity or validity is something new to fit into their busy clinical workplace so i i think there are a variety of factors there megan some sites would say pharma sponsors and cro's do a great job of throwing things into studies that add work and burden to them without necessarily holding back because of their hesitation or reluctance uh, I completely agree that these need to work and fit for our investigators. But what other barriers are there in your mind, Megan, that are standing in the way of far more widespread utilization and adoption of these new measures or new endpoints? Yeah, I think this is such a multifaceted topic, as, as you mentioned at the, the start of this. Um, some of it, I think, is just lack of alignment. Um, between sponsors really trying to land on digital endpoints that are applicable to therapeutic areas and of interest for sponsors, um, which I know work is being done with DIME um, to try and get these digital endpoints to go through the validation process, which is 
very time consuming, costly. There needs to be funding provided in order to get these digital endpoints to where they're accepted by regulators. So I think alignment between sponsors would be really helpful to, to push some of these digital endpoints forward as well, um, which begins with just recognition of the benefit of these objective measures. Um, and I think, you know, that's one of our goals is just trying to talk about this, educate folks about um, the possibilities of using connected sensors, the type of data that could be captured about the real life experiences of these patients. Um, so I, I think it will take a, a little bit of time, but hopefully everyone will start to get aligned and um, push together for, for more adoption of this. Jane, you've been working around this space for a while uh, in a number of different roles. What are your thoughts around the adoption? Are we where we're supposed to be right now? Is it just a, a slow and steady crawl with industry? Or is there some event that's out there and we're just around the corner from some catalyzing spike in the adoption of these approaches? <clears throat> Sadly, I don't see a massive push to use these. I think there's a lot of curiosity. That's that's quite different. So people are eager, but I wonder if they're aiming to be fast followers instead of being the first out of the gate. And I do agree that the validation will help with that adoption. But one of the questions I get asked a lot, because I had the opportunity to use a wearable for five years in a trial. And People saw I was wearing two watches. They were like, why are you wearing two watches? And do they agree? And no, they didn't, of course. And I think that's one of the questions, maybe it's to Luke, on how comparable the data needs to be for us to feel confident that the wearables are giving us data that's helpful. Luke, a great point raised there by Jane, you know, in terms of inter-device variability, letting people use their own connected devices in these, uh, in these studies. What are your thoughts? Wow, <laughs> that's a big question is my thought. And um, it's, it's going to be indication by indication. Um, yeah, I, I'm... I'm struggling a little to provide a, a, a generalized answer there. Um, I, in the end, I think with any kind of, I mean, we use these terms like validation and there's always some elasticity as to what they mean. I think the point at which we will have sufficiently valid measures is the point, it's almost a circular thing, the point at which we're able to get recognition for those measures being sufficiently valid. Um, I think variation between devices is a huge, huge, huge problem. Um, and I, I, I'm probably not the best person to ask how this will be solved, but obviously we want to try and get people using devices that are ecologically valid for them they fit within their lives but uh, measuring the same thing as other devices and yeah it's, it's a it's a huge challenge and these are to be honest some of the concerns that we end up discussing with when we're looking at developing um, new products we're looking at whether to include things in protocols 
do we go with it? Do we take that risk? And the logistics of developing drugs really push you a little towards conservatism to what you know has worked in the past. And so it's going to be a pretty high bar to cross to get those um, to meet those valid validity goals. Can I ask a measurement question since you mentioned that's one of your areas of specialty? Mm -hmm. um, is it common to use the individual as a self-control? And what I mean by that is probably the wrong term. But taking a baseline set of data from the individual and using that as the basis to understand the variation in the data collected from the sensor, is that something you do or is that something that could help with this inter-device variability or am I just crazy? I mean, I, I think in general, and this is me speaking almost more as a, this is the pre-clinical trials me speaking, that's the gold standard. If you compare people to their own baseline performance, that's when you start to get the most useful measurement. Obviously, in clinical trials with a lot of measures we use, we tend to compare to population means. But obviously, if you can compare people to a genuine baseline, then that makes it far easier to track change over time. So yeah, that that's the ideal. But that's going to change some of the ways in which we um, set trials up. That's a lot of complexity, I would think. Yeah. Well, it adds it, some complexity, but it, it creates some great opportunities, right? It adds some complexity, but it is then a part of, to the point you were just making earlier, Luke, this is how we might need to validate or qualify some of our measurements. The idea of Jane Miles wearing two watches is not shocking. Jane is a nerd like many of us on this call and would fully embrace the opportunity because she's curious. She wants to see, do these two devices generate the same data? My mom ain't wearing two watches. In fact, she's probably not wearing any watch because she already owns a watch. And so she might want the form factor to be more like a bracelet or something else that can fit her world and how she operates. We need to figure out how to bend and conform how we're qualifying and validating our algorithms, but also even being flexible about the form factors and how we're deploying these. Megan? Yeah, I was just going to kind of piggyback off of that, that I think sensor selection is so, so important. Trying to find, you know, the sensors and wearables that are such a buzzword, but are truly fit for purpose um, is what's really important to getting data that's relevant to the trial and to the population. And that is sensitive enough that you can draw accurate conclusions about what, you know, has has been going on. So there's a lot that drives i think good sensor selection there are so many connected sensors out there it can be very overwhelming um but i think you know having accurate sensor selection is just so important with these studies megan uh I, we're gonna come to the bottom of the hour in just a moment and that's a reminder for our audience if you have questions or perspectives you want to bring in your hand raisey icon is at the bottom of the screen. I'm sure Clubhouse does not call it the hand raisey icon, but I'm gonna go there. Um, so take advantage of that and we'll bring you up on the stage in just a couple of minutes. As we're heading over there, I'm curious, Megan, what's the role of a CRO? 
in this space? Are you looking to develop and validate and own IP around algorithms? Are you a partner during the validation process? Are you looking more downstream at supporting the scale and the execution? Does it vary with large pharma customers versus small? There's a hundred questions rolled in there. Megan, talk to me about like, what, what's the role of a CRO here? Ooh, that is a good one. Um, I think we are still trying to figure that out. But in general, I think our, our role is to have an understanding of the landscape of what's available um, and be up to date and on the forefront of advancement so that we can connect you know, pharma sponsors and clients with the best solutions for their products. So we're trying to be you know, the eyes and ears of the industry so that we can try to help drive sponsors in in the right direction. I think we should have a hand, you know, in running these validation studies. I think that's uh, absolutely something um, that we could be doing here as a CRO. Yeah, and, and just to come in on that, I would agree on the validation studies because often they can um, take place alongside maybe earlier phase trials if you have those um, wearables used as exploratory measures. So we can definitely have a place in that. But I think our role as well is to be a, a second set of eyes, a, a council to know that landscape and to help the um, sponsors to evaluate and to make the wisest possible decisions. Because it's a developing market, there are very few certainties but we can provide some support and just help to structure and scaffold um, the process by which these wearables really start to come into full use. But that process has to begin a long time ago, right? And by that, what I mean is, right, if, if I'm putting out an RFP right now, finding CROs to support my, my trial, I probably have a protocol synopsis. I've probably gone pretty far. Um, and now I've got first patient, first visit in my mind. And it's probably too late. Or is it, Luke, to, to really get engaged and make a meaningful difference? I mean, it depends. RFPs come in various forms. Sometimes you're right. You might get a really really full protocol that doesn't change very much. Sometimes, and this is something that's very stimulating and enjoyable for me as a scientist, we can get involved at the point where there's really just a, a concept and we can develop it from, from there. And I think that particularly happens in some of the novel and rare disease spaces we work in where maybe there isn't quite the same route map as there might be for the better explored indications. So it varies, but in those in those circumstances where we get really, really spare um, synopses to work with, then that's really where we tend to have the time to work at these things and really look at the best way of doing it. Let's open up the room, Amir. What do you think? Absolutely. I think we've had uh, some hands up earlier, so yeah. We did. If your hand uh, raisey icon has gone down, feel free to bring it back up. We'll pull you up here on the stage. 
This is TGIFDCT, the uh, Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse. And if you're new here, we gather here on Fridays, uh, 12 to 1 Eastern, 9 to 10 Pacific. We cover a range of topics around decentralized trials. If you have a topic you'd love to see us cover, make sure to let us know. Uh, myself, Amir, Jane Miles, we'll make sure to build you into the weekly cadence, just like we did with Megan on this week's topic around the unmet needs for wearables and connected devices in our clinical trials. This is the second half hour where we get to open up the room and hear from you. What are your questions, your ideas, your your perspectives on the conversation so far? And wow, we've got some great folks who've already taken the bait and joined us up here on stage. And to get us started, I'd love to turn the mic over first to uh, Joao Bocas, who's uh, very well known on this topic on social media. Welcome. If folks don't know you, please take a moment, introduce yourself to the audience. Yeah, thank you, Craig, for the invitation. Also, nice to see Joe and Amir and everybody else. My name is Joe Bookers, also known as the wearables expert. It's a super interesting topic. And um, yeah, my point of view very, very quickly to let others speak about uh, the topic is wearables is um, it's fascinating. The potential is huge, but we have a paradox because um, we, we don't have, we have a highly regulated environment. And then we have very little benchmark in the experience around data and around the fragmentation and also deviation of the data. Megan already mentioned that around different wearables, given different variables, different data sets is a lot of discrepancy. If you use a Fitbit and the Garmin, probably have a discrepancy of 10 or 20%. So the accuracy is always a big issue. And also, it also depends the individual, you know. I mean, the wearables are reliable to a certain extent. So, I mean, there is no, um, unfortunately, no right answer right now, but the senses, the senses and the capabilities are becoming more sophisticated. The data hopefully will become more reliable and in turn, the industries will absorb the technologies and also the processes because is is a lot going on and it's not just about bringing data it's about bringing the whole picture together we have to consider many aspects about the change of behavior of course reliability personal it is a lot of concerns around this stuff around personal security around privacy and i've done a lot of studies and a lot of work around this and people have different concerns so a, a personalized approach is is highly needed as well, but everybody is trying to figure out the space because it's a new, is a kind of a new layer on top of clinical trials, pharma, life sciences, and healthcare. So it brings more complex complexity to the industries at the same time. But anyway, we could talk for hours on different things. I appreciate your um, invite and uh, yeah. So, Joe, uh, a, a personalized approach makes it sound like that's going to be really hard to drive scale across all of our studies, across all of our therapeutic areas, across all the endpoints in each study. Um, how do we drive, like, what's it going to take to create an inflection point and adoption if we have to go one by one with very individualized approaches? Yeah, it seems like it's a, a huge task. But the, one thing of um, 
wearables have not been able, the manufacturers have not been able to crack yet, is a more personalized approach. And I remember when Fitbit, uh, before Google acquired them, they acquired a coaching company because the, the, the big potential around wearables is, of course, the data, but is the change of behavior. And I'm afraid it's very difficult to, to, to achieve because you can't really have a wearable with 500 different uh, uh, sets and 500 different kind of uh, capabilities and, uh, and other things. So it, it, it's difficult. So it's about actually using them. And the more we use them, the more we get a kind of an idea about how people can use them in a better and more effective way. Thanks so much, Joao. We've got some other uh, great voices up here on the stage, and maybe we'll turn over to Rob Wilson, and then Megan and Luke will we'll see if uh, if you have some reflection on what you're hearing. Rob, it's always great to see you, my friend. Uh, feel free to introduce yourself for the audience, if they Hi. don't know you. Yeah, thanks, Craig and Amir, for uh, pulling this topic together. My name's Rob Wilson. I currently run marketing and strategy for a company called VivoSense, which uh, develops digital clinical endpoints um, from wearable devices and uh, that company's been doing that for over 12 years and works with over 70 different sensors. Prior to that I spent 10 years building the clinical trial business for Actigraph which is a leading 510k registered actigraphy device that's been used globally in clinical trials for many many years so I've been fortunate to be involved in this space for quite a long time but having said that as I tell Craig and Amir, we're still at the early stages of adoption. And so I think I just have a couple of comments. One is I think it's a mistake to think about this in the context of just a sensor for a clinical trial. Um, I make this all the point. To get a quality digital endpoint that's meaningful to the patient and is reflective of disease progression and intervention, it's an ecosystem solution, not just the sensor, but the software that analyzes the data the operational deployment at the site or decentralized level to get that device to the patient and data back from the patient. It's actually the data capture, cleaning, and interpretation of that day's uh, data to a point of meaning. Um, and this comes all within a very complex regulatory environment uh, where people are, are traditionally risk averse to change the way they do things, which is why the adoption curve is, is slow here. Um, the really three key points I would make to your question earlier, Craig, on adoption is it's really cost, it's risk, and it's validation. And so, you know, the, we're, we're at the early stages. I mean, it's garbage in, garbage out if you're going to measure patient uh, endpoints and you don't have a clear thought about what the fit for purpose, what the measurement should or could be, what the fit for purpose device is, and how to um, deploy that in an inaccurate setting. So I, I think, you know, we're on a learning curve and what, what we would like to see, I mean, DIME has done a lot, you know, DTRA has done a lot in elevating how these tools could be used. I mean, it, it's, it's sad that it, the clinical trial process still takes eight to 10 years and a couple billion dollars and we still are not monitoring and or engaging with that patient on a regular basis throughout a trial or throughout its, his care cycle or her care cycle uh, at the end of the trial. So these tools have unbelievable um, opportunity for meaning and what we need is to uh, accelerate, we need risk takers 
at the pharma level and at the CR level to engage with people like VivoSense and ActiGraph and Conexa and uh, uh, Human First and other people that do understand this digital endpoint development business and increase the number of opportunities. But I think it's a dollar, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a cost issue, Craig and team, and it's a, a risk issue, and it's a validation issue. We are making progress, there's no question about that. Um, but uh, we need to accelerate the use of these tools because there is a learning curve involved in all of those five legs of that ecosystem that I mentioned earlier have to come together to get a quality result and an FDA regulated um, and approved endpoint in a clinical trial. It sounds like you're preaching patience, Rob. Are you a patient guy? Rob, it sounds like you're preaching patience for us. Are are you are you patient? I'm I'm not patient. You know, I I I, uh, I try to be, but I do get a little bit of frustration because there's a lack of knowledge of existing um, data, resources, evidence, and results that sponsors and CROs could take advantage of if they were to engage with folks that have a lot of experience doing that. And we could really these 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 vendors that I had mentioned including us, and I say vendor inappropriately, because it's really a partnership when you're working with somebody like us, we could really accelerate it. I mean, there needs to be a sense of urgency to get this done. It's really the patients that are, that are um, it's really the patients that are, fall, uh, that are having the burden. I mean, we work quite a bit in rare disease, and so we see that a lot. We work in rare disease and respiratory oncology and a lot in sleep. I'm sure people saw the sleep dime uh, initiative that was announced a couple days ago that we'll be actively involved in along with a number of the other folks that I mentioned. But patients' activity and sleep <laughs> always gets affected by chronic disease and the drugs we use to intervene with that disease. And that frustrates me because there are better ways to measure that and improve that patient's quality of life and I believe increase the efficiency and efficacy of the clinical trial process by having better patient information and better um, uh, timeliness of that real-world environment, patient interaction with the intervention uh, in a clinical trial or care sphere. Megan, should we keep going and uh, hear from some other voices here in the room, or did you have any, uh, any lean based on what you were hearing from Rob and Joao so far? No, I think it's great to hear from some other, you know, experts in the field and I totally, you know, I'm on board and agree with with both of them. So appreciate you you speaking up and educating us all on on your positions here. Well, let, let's keep on going then. Shalon, it's great to have you here. What are what are your thoughts on perspectives on this week's topic? And of course, introduce yourself for folks that have not had the pleasure. Thanks. I have um, PTSD from the last time I tried to say something here and my mic wasn't working. So can someone confirm that you can hear me? You are confirmed loud and clear. Let that be a, a figment of the past. <laughs> All right. So, so I'm a medical oncologist and I've been living at the intersection of um, health IT and clinical trial research um, for about five or six years. Currently, I'm the vice president for oncology at Science 37. My entry into um, this space was this tiny uh, medical student project that I did many years ago uh, with one of our medical students that was just looking at the feasibility of using Fitbits in cancer patients. 
and I hear all the conversations that are happening in in, in new sensors and validation of sensors and validating endpoints. And I think all of that is extremely exciting. That's the future of cancer care, of, 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 of uh, clinical trial research and, and development of patient-centric endpoints. So I'm a true believer in that. My worry uh, or my observation is that this entire space is stuck in, um, in the phase of feasibility-itis where we just keep doing feasibility studies from one indication and one device to the next and are struggling to scale that up. And I'm really excited to see folks from Cineos on the call and I wanna hear from them on what can be done to, to scale the adoption of these devices in a way which is equitable and has broad reach. And the reason I'm asking this question is when you have um, when, when we did our tiny Fitbit study at a single center, it used to take us 45 minutes to an hour to set up a simple Fitbit device. And the first patient we onboarded was a 45-year-old network engineer. She didn't know her password. Her firmware was outdated for her phone, wasn't connecting to the Wi-Fi. So many challenges upfront in onboarding patients that whenever I think about scaling that across multiple sites, and then I think about scaling that across multiple um, patients from different demographics and different zip codes, including rural patients, um, we really need a plug and play solution for those. And yes, the validation work will come. Um, and, and of course, there's a lot of work that's done in terms of commissioning devices that have 4G, 5G access and providing devices that are pre-synced. But, but I feel that um, the CROs are sitting in a in a position where they can develop these plug and play solutions that will allow this technology to to scale. And there are going to be dozens of new devices and those aspects that are going to come in. We already have glucose monitors that that are um, that have evolved to to this point. Wearable devices uh, for for sleep and and step measurements. But then there's so many other cardiovascular monitoring devices. But all of them, in my opinion, will struggle with this onboarding barrier. Um, and I'm curious to hear what you all feel is being done and can be done to help us scale these in an equitable manner. Great question. Megan, Luke, any takers in terms of the role of the CRO as being a catalyst for scale and equitable scale at that? Okay, I'll jump in first. I mean, yeah, obviously, as CROs, we're we're in a potentially very powerful position to support this. And I think a big part of the evidence for our commitment to do that is um, Megan's role, her, their, her role in gathering all of this data and understanding and hopefully put it at a point where when we come to developing new projects, we have that information to hand and therefore it means we're more likely to be able to support and recommend and possibly reassure potential sponsors as to how this can work for their program but i mean i think that is i think our role there is the um council and also custodian of the product of the um, company we're working with is important here we need to make sure that we've got that information on hand so we can provide them with advice that suggests this is the best way forward, this is a safe way forward, because that's what allows us to 
support our sponsors in moving maybe beyond some of the more conservative or um, better established paths to achieving regulatory approval because in the end as a CRO that's our, our goal we look after the product development of that sponsor so we need to be able to properly support them and reassure them to do that and I think the information Megan brings in is valuable invaluable in doing that yeah so I, I know what we have been doing is really a combination of our internal offerings at Sineos along with vendor partnerships so that we can deploy these more at scale um, but it, some of it is study to study. So if we're looking at um, sensors that are, you know, medical grade, sometimes it makes a lot of sense to provision um, those out-of-the-box solutions where we partner with a vendor, we have a provisioned phone, the device, like open it up, plug it in. They have local SIM cards um, to where they're being deployed to try to make that more equitable when we're deploying these types of studies. Um, it definitely becomes more complex with the bring your own device models. There's pros and cons to each, in, in my opinion. I think BYOD is great. They have familiarity with the device. Those push notifications that they get, reminders to put devices on, um, are more accessible in BYOD. But as you mentioned, there can be issues with the age of the phone, the software on the phone. Um, so sometimes out of the box, um, process is better. So I think study by study, we try to, you know, put forth the best fit that we can um, and also staying within budget for, for our clients. So there's a lot of factors that I think I take into account when working on these various projects, but um, absolutely. There's just a, a lot of complexity on trying to make this as easy as possible for, for the patients and, and scalable. Hmm. And just one addition to that, I, I think some of the operational concerns about getting some of these technologies out there are huge things like hospitals who have a Wi-Fi system that you can't you can't get onto. That if you some of these things are really quite problematic, and that combined with often the tech savvy of the staff at sites means that you need to have really good support systems and pragmatic things like really good, really genuinely widely available um, helplines to get these things working and to take the site burden as low as possible. Mm -hmm. Yep, we're working on um, really expanding like availability of help desks. I think as it's been said, sites are overwhelmed. They have a lot to do. Um, they can't be spending hours trying to start up these connected devices and wearables. So um, we've been working on, you know, availability of these help desks um, and patient compliance to help the site. So taking a little bit of that outside of the site to maybe remote coordination, things like that. So um, there's definitely work being done on trying to make this uh, more compliant and easier to deploy for sure. Great points on scalability, right? And even if there are going to still need to be highly customized front ends in terms of how we engage and develop, qualify these measurements on the back end, hopefully we have some good reproducible, scalable approaches. Amir? 
Craig, I noticed Nelson's just joined us on stage, and I just want to ask him a quick question based on what we just talked about. Nelson, have you, as a uh, you know site owner, have you uh, implemented any wearables in any studies, and what was your experience like? Hey, uh, thanks for having me up here, guys. Uh, in in terms of our site neurology trials, we haven't had any that were mandatory. We've had. Um, trials that had a optional component in which participants um, could could use a wearable. Um, there were a couple different ones, but uh, it self-selects for the people who are comfortable with it, right? Which is, uh, which is preferable for the site at least because uh, the vast majority of problems come from a small number of people using devices like this. And if there's one thing sites um, hate to hear, there's many things, I suppose, but if there's one thing, it's uh, when people talk about help desks because they, uh, it ends up shifting all this burden onto the site on how to troubleshoot um, any issues that come up, so. Great, thank you. Let's keep uh, hearing from some of the other voices we have here today. Let's take a listen over to Joe Dustin. Always good to see you, Mr. E-Clinical. Feel free to reintroduce yourself if anyone has not had the pleasure. Thanks for accepting my hand raising thing. Uh, always good when it works. Uh, my name is Joe Dustin. I am the uh, VP of Eco at Medable. Um, but I've been spending, wow, um, I think Rob probably has me on experience in wearables, but I've been working on wearables since about 2013. So yeah, about 10 years now. And um, back then, the question of scale definitely came up. Um, the question of reusability, validity, where's the niche market? Is this something that's gonna blow up and be um, a repeatable, recurring software as a service type offering? Or is this gonna be very custom bespoke and specific to each indication. And it feels like everything is, it's never going to scale and it's going to be these boutique shops that do it all day. And, and back then we weren't sure. And so if everyone remembers, um, you know, this is when like M health was the big marketing keyword in uh, 2013, right, right around uh, the time when buzzword, right, right before like risk-based monitoring was the keyword, right? It was M health. And I think that, what we found at that time, I was at Metadata at the time when we were doing all this research and building building solutions. And um, this is before, you know, VivoSense was around a lot longer than that, but this is before companies like PhysIQ and Connexa and, um, you know, Bioformis and whatnot really kind of came into uh, a, a place. What I found is that everybody wants the consumer experience and everybody in clinical trials are questioning if it's possible. Patients don't want to wear two watches. They don't want to wear the thing that looks like a house arrest monitor on their wrist. Um, but also the data has to be reliable for a clinical trial. And the data has to be outside the black box algorithm that like a Garmin and Fitbit are never going to release. Right. And so fit for purpose devices became a thing. And um, I'll never forget a meeting that I had um, at a large pharma company, probably 2015. Um, <clears throat> and there was a guy, uh, sort of head oncology, um, type researcher there, you're an immuno-oncology at the time, and, and Shalyn, you might relate to this this comment, maybe since it's given your history, but 
um, we did this whole wearable conversation and in the innovation team and looking at, you know, where can we apply this? Where were things that we couldn't get before? You know, those typical conversations that I know many of us have probably had on within clinical development teams. You go to the scientists, you go to the people and you say, you know, where, what type of data are you looking for that you can't get today that could help you differentiate in the market or help you with your drug approval or help you understand quality of life or differentiation or something, right? Or what kind of data are you trying to get to prove your endpoints that is just difficult? Like you have to go to the clinic to do it. Can you do it at home? What, what are these types of things that this is a brainstorming session? And in this particular session, most of the talk at the time was really only activity and sleep in cancer patients and figuring out ways to like understand, you know, the cancer treatment might be great, but if you, if the treatment just makes it had really bad side effects, is it really that great? At that time, he's, I'll never forget it. He said, Joe, we are not in commodity diseases like heart failure and, and diabetes. And we say we are in treatments where there is no alternative. And to the regulators and to the patients that need this, they need to be alive and that's what matters. And there was no other alternative. So tracking someone's activity in sleep really doesn't matter yet. Um, and so they didn't see any value to it. He was really like being hard on like the hard op opposition to collecting data that aren't going to help us in a submission for a regulatory approval. But he said, because this doesn't mean later on it's going to help, but like right now, this doesn't matter to us. Right. And I think that this, like, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the, how do we find the niche where this stuff works now, now over the past 10 years, we've seen a lot of work in digital biomarkers and endpoints and like doing predictive analytics to, to create like pre-competitive have many companies going skin in the game to figure out how can we develop this algorithm to like, you know, detect cytokine storms or detect AFib or detect all these things in specific patient populations. I think that's great. And until that becomes a scalable open thing, then the, the dream is that companies are going to license the algorithm and the, the data, they have rights to the data, but the pharma company owns the rights and the IP to the, the data and everything related to their drug but the software company owns the algorithm and that creates controversy sometimes, but I think it's the right model. Um, what I'm saying is 10 years later, we're nowhere near scale. Um, you're not going to put a hundred wearables on the global trial and even in a phase two trial um, because, but what I will say is we are past the pilot stage where people are understanding yeah. value. So I, I don't even know that we know what scale means here that um, especially if part of our future is a lot of um, individual, highly customized, personalized front ends. Hey, Nelson, I know Amir threw a question at you earlier, but I wasn't sure. Did you have another perspective you wanted to bring in on this conversation in our final minute? No, uh, I think we've been blessed to have uh, so many experts on and Joe, really appreciate you giving us a bit of context and history. That was fantastic. And no, I think uh, I've really enjoyed the hour. Really, Absolutely. Uh, oh, I meant for uh, for Nelson, if he had anything else he wanted to bring in. Oh, I, I was at a conference years ago. I brought it up in these meetings before where the head of the FDA's psychiatry division spoke at length about her willingness to and the agency's willingness to accept wearables as primaries. And I don't know how freely they speak post Agihelm, but um, if, if there's anything coming up where they're expected to speak on this topic, but it, it was more riveting than what I'm used to seeing from them. So it, 
I'm how thanks hopeful. Nelson how about I just turn really quick Megan to you for the last word on either that topic of primary endpoints or what are you keeping an eye on Megan that we should be watching in this final minute that we have together oh um yeah, I mean, I think the the new thing that I've been keeping an eye on is uh, the safe use of these sensors for safety monitoring, um, with patients being their own baselines um, and using changes in their vital signs to alert study teams to safety events. I think that is a, a super interesting new use of the, the sensors. So I love eye out everything that. about that, Megan, from the safety <laughs> angle to patients as their own baselines there. Amir, any other final words here before we wrap I up? I appreciate everyone who turned up today, and I think we had a great conversation. And stay tuned for the next couple of weeks. We've got some great content coming up. Follow the club. Follow the voices you heard. Follow the other people that are sharing interest with you in this room. Enjoy the weekend. We'll see you next week.